0: Thanks a lot, you guys. Great to see you. Hey, if you're new to Sunridge, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for those of you that know me, I'm just so glad that you keep coming back every Sunday. I don't know what's wrong with you. Maybe you should get in counseling, but thanks a lot for coming. I want to put in a plug uh, for something that Becky mentioned earlier, this, uh, this great big party we're having at the Temecula CRC on August 5th. You know, years ago, before Sunridge came into its glory and had a building and all this stuff. We used to meet in Temecula Middle School, and so we really had no place to get together and party. And so uh, we started meeting every year at the CRC, and we called it an annual celebration, and it was so much fun. So anybody, anybody here that used to go to those old annual celebrations? Okay, so it's nostalgic for some of us, but if you've never been, this is going to be a great time of worship, of hanging out with one another, and just uh, enjoying what God has been doing uh, in our church and uh, in your lives as well. So please sign up. Sign up fast because we want to know how many people to get food for and you don't want to go hungry. We want, we want you to leave filled up in your spirit and filled up in your belly. Is that, that good? So, okay. Um, I wonder how many of you uh, recently had to admit you were wrong. Don't raise your hand. Um, you know, maybe, likely, it was at home, uh, either with your spouse or with your kids. Uh, and you had to just step up and go, yeah, I was wrong. Um, maybe, maybe it was at work, you know, and when your supervisor came to you, you made a typo, you, you put the spreadsheet, you put the wrong formula in there, you, you did, you know, you didn't handle that customer, right? And so they had this talk with you and you, you know, you had to admit, okay, I was wrong. Maybe you're driving on the freeway this week and CHP officer pulled you over and you thought you were fine. Because you were only going eight miles an hour over the speed limit. You know, eight is great, nine you're mine. Just as a clue, CHP officers also know that saying, and when they give you the ticket, you're like, you're like, I wasn't speeding. I was only going eight miles an hour over the speed limit." You know, the word the Bible uses for admitting that we're wrong is repentance. And the reason why I say that is we're in this series, if you're joining us, called Psalms by the Numbers. This summer we're taking one psalm every week, eight psalms in all. And we're just calling the title by the number. And today is 51, Psalm 51. And it is a psalm about repentance. And if you don't know the story, you can read about it in 2 Samuel 12. But basically it goes like this, David is the king of the nation of Israel, and so being the king, he can do whatever he wants. It's not just a patriarchal system where men rule over women in every way. It is also, he's the king. He can do whatever he wants. He happens to be out on his palace patio one day, and he sees a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath on her patio, thinking, that, not knowing that someone's creeping out on her. You've heard uh, peeping Tom. This is peeping David. And uh, so he, he gives his lust full vent. He, and he causes, makes her come to the palace. He has relations with her. She gets pregnant. Um, he wants to cover it all up. She's married, so he uh, has her husband named Uriah. Uh, he calls in his supervisor from uh, the military and says, hey, the next battle you're in, have your men withdraw from Uriah and, so that he's in the front all by himself. And that happens, and he's killed. And it seems like life goes on just nicely for King David. Maybe it's like a uh, regular occurrence. But um, at any rate, uh, he doesn't really get it until his life coach, a prophet named Nathan, comes to him. And he tells him a story and even, that, that is kind of like, like a, a metaphor of what happened, what he did. And even when, when Nathan's telling David the story, he doesn't get it. And uh, at the end of the story, which like you should grasp the moral of the story at some point, he doesn't. And so Nathan finally says, "Yeah, the story I've just been telling you, you're the guy. You're the bad guy in this story." And it's in that moment that David has kind of this epiphany about his sin, and he's repentant of it. And so he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, about his feelings, his experience and his thoughts of what it means to repent of this transgression. Now, I know, as a pastor, that um, repentance is not our favorite topic, is it? It's right up there with giving. And, you know, uh, most of you know, every week I send out an email that tells people, hey, this is what the message is going to be about. And some weeks I've, I really hate to say send, because it's like, oh... And yet, many of you came, probably because you didn't read the email, (laughs) but that's your problem right now. Um, So I know it's not our favorite topic, but what I hope to do today is, one, dispel the myths that surround this idea of repentance, but also talk about how uh, it's a necessary part of our relationship with God, and it's part of a healthy relationship with one another. And I think that you'll be able to see that. You know, uh, the topic of repentance in a psalm uh, really makes uh, our nice-to-know we've been doing every week it, that much more poignant to me. If, you, if you're just joining us with every psalm, we're kind of talking about a thing that maybe people don't know in general about psalms. And so here's our nice-to-know uh, for this psalm. The psalms were written to be publicly performed, not privately prayed. The psalms were written to be publicly performed, not privately prayed. Maybe ne- never thought about that, but Jed kind of, uh, he talked about it last week in terms of uh, them being songs and music that are presented. But these, you know, we sometimes you read the Psalms and we think, that's just me, you know, it's between me and God, but these are public performances. Um, if you look at many of the Psalms, the way they start, there's a prelude Some of them in your Bible might say, for the strings, for the flutes, for the dedication of the temple. Or this one, in this psalm, this is the most often used prelude. And it says this, that this psalm is for the director of music. It's a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the idea that somebody would write words for public consumption about their experiences of this heinous sin. It's truly remarkable. I mean, think about it. Put yourself there. It's easy for us to read it thousands of years later, but picture like it's raw, it's current. The tongues are, have been wagging in the palace. There's a lot of scandal going on. There's a baby in the palace now. Bathsheba has moved in. Uriah is dead. So this this is not just scandalous, but it's also public scandal. And it's in that context that David writes this beautiful psalm that I think can help us today understand and express repentance in a healthy way and also see some of the benefits that come with it. But before we look at the psalm, I'd like to just talk about a few things that are in your notes about repentance. Let's just briefly cover a few things about what repentance is. Repentance is, first of all, a change of mind. It's a change of mind. You know, your your image of repentance might be kind of like a circa 1800s, uh, you know, pastor with slicked hair, with a bony finger yelling and screaming at people and, you know, having them all feel the, the fires of hell. But repentance really just means remorse or contrition or change. It literally means to change your mind. Secondly, repentance is a part of life, even a life without faith. Repentance is a part of life, even a life without faith. It's, it's, it's part of the human experience. And most psychologists and counselors will tell you that Owning your stuff, being able to admit we're wrong, is part of being in healthy relationships. If you're a person that's been stuck a lot in your life, maybe you're stuck in your career and you can't hold down a job or you seem to be stuck in your relationships and that you can't maintain long-term and meaningful relationships or you find yourself in constant conflict with others, it might be. Because there's an absence of repentance in your life. If it's such a necessary part of life, why is it so hard? Well, repentance is difficult because it it, it requires us to drop our egos. Repentance is difficult because it requires us to drop our egos. You know, um, I guess I was wrong about that. might be some of the hardest words human beings have ever uttered. Because repentance requires a release of ourselves. We tend to be self-protective. Uh, that keeps us from being authentic. We're prideful. Uh, to repent means i got to let go of some of my own uh, drive to gratify myself. You know, in the conversations that I've had with people that don't have faith, I've found that having faith isn't the hurdle. Many people believe in God, they believe in in something bigger than life is, but the true hurdle is repentance. It is a necessary part of life with God and with others. Lastly, repentance is a necessary part of the gospel sort of necessary part of the gospel. You see, repentance often in your Bible is connected with faith. In fact, this phrase is often used in your New Testament, repent and believe, repent and then turn to God. And the truth is, no human being turns to God without actually understanding that they need to turn to God, which is repentance. And, you know, the bad news is it isn't just part of, like, stepping across that line of faith and, hey, I repented once and now I'm good. It's like it's an ongoing practice. Even if you're a really good Christian, it's likely that you still need to repent often because we still make mistakes. Jesus said that he came to... um, Save not the righteous, but call sinners to repentance. Jesus accepts us the way we are, but that coming to him requires a recognition of our need to repent. You know, I don't think that there's any more genuine or comprehensive text in one place on repentance then Psalm 51. And so we're going to look at it in the time that we have left. And what i like to do is just point out like four things. There, there might be more, um, but at least four things that I think we learn about repentance from David's Psalm. The first one is in verses one through two. And it is this, that repentance requires, relies on mercy. Repentance relies on mercy. You know, one hurdle that we have in repenting is that we really don't believe that there's mercy on the other side of that, right? Our experience has taught us that we shouldn't really show repentance. We've got to kind of hold back, not just with God, but with others, because if we, if we, if we admit fault, if we repent, then mercy isn't waiting for us. It's consequence, and uh, more punishment, possibly shame, and hard labor for some of us. So the idea of even repenting relies on the fact that there's mercy on the other side. It's, and when we don't think that there is, that, that's why we don't tell on ourselves. You have a drinking problem and you're not willing to admit it until you get the DUI. And you have all these health issues, and you're not willing to go see a doctor and talk about them until you get the ambulance ride. And you have all these conflicts in your relationship at home, and they go on and on, and they go on for 10, 20 years, and and the only time you're ever willing to admit fault or talk about faults and messiness in that relationship is when somebody throws the word divorce on the table. And we make all these financial decisions that, that are like all messed up and we, our financial si- uh, situation is all in turmoil. And we just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until one day we have to claim bankruptcy. And that's when we're willing to stand and face all of our choices. We just wait too long to do it because we don't think mercy is there. Look at what David says in verse 1. And how he's relying on god's mercy in his repentance have mercy on me oh god according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin david starts this psalm out from the very beginning relying on god's mercy he's relying on god's compassion his great compassion he says blot out my sins which The language he's using, it's like there's a series of indictments, and this person is standing in court, and somebody's just erasing all the the accusations that may come for them. And essentially, what he's saying in these first two verses is, Can I get some undeserved mercy here? Paul writes in Romans 2 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us toward repentance. Isn't that interesting? Another way to put that, I would say, is that it's much easier to repent when you know that there's mercy on the other side of that. And that's what leads us toward God, not, not being like putting your nose in it and shoving it in it and being ground and, and like accused and shamed and blamed. It's like God invites us to repent because what's waiting for us is his kindness and his mercy. I don't know if you're far from God and you came to church for some reason because you're kind of having a spiritual awakening or something, but you may have come with many misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian or uh, what is a life of faith like. And you might have the misconception that God requires you to clean up your act before you come to him That's not it. That this church is filled with people who began a relationship with God by admitting their mistakes. Repentance. And ongoing repentance as well. Because we know that God's mercy, what we sang, his amazing grace awaits us. By the way, do you ever wonder what the world would be like if people who were Christians emulated God on this and we gave mercy to people rather than really sticking it to them because of what they did? You know, one of the greatest challenges to my faith these days is going to Costco And I find that I can go to Costco with one of two mindsets. I can go with the angry Brit Costco. Anybody? Not not have you seen Brit angry, but uh, you may have. (laughs) Or I can go with kind of a mercy mindset, if you will. And I find that if I go with a mercy mindset, things go much better for me. And I get like a way better response from others, interestingly. So... You know, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on at Costco. It starts in the parking lot. People leaving their carts in that last spot that you're waiting for and they just drive away. And people walking down the middle of the road or the aisleway when you're trying to get to a parking spot. Um, you walk in and people just don't seem to want to follow the unspoken rules of like the main aisles are the that's the freeway. And you don't, you don't turn off of a side aisle out into the freeway unless you look around first. And you don't clog it all up like waiting for your little cup of peanuts or something. Like, like you're starving to death. Like, dude, buy the peanuts and go home. Don't wait in a line of 20 people. It's peanuts. Amen. Thank you, brother. Now I'm preaching. And so if I go in with the attitude of like, I'm just going to... I know how it's gonna be, it's like, go ahead. There's plenty of stupid people all around, just get in front, I don't care. Hit me with your cart in the heel. I'm not even gonna turn around and give you an angry look when I'm in my right zone, you know? But if I'm not, then just everybody bugs me. And uh, just within a month ago, Cindy and I were going down the, one of the freeways in Costco. And there was a couple a little younger than us, but you know, they just turned right out into the aisle without even looking. It was almost like they were purposely not looking because it's all about them, you know? And uh, I wasn't in my mercy mindset. I wasn't horrible, but I just said, I thought loud enough for Cindy only to hear, but I said, yeah, just come on out, go out there and don't look. Well, he said something, I didn't hear what he said, And later, Cindy told me, like a few aisles later, what he said. And you know, he called me like a slang term for a donkey. Are you familiar with this term? I'm like, why didn't you tell me? I could have like just totally pile drive that guy. I know I could take him. So all I'm saying is, it makes a big difference in my own heart, and it certainly makes a big difference in the way people respond. A mercy mindset. Um, now, I don't mean by mercy that, you know, there's just no standards and whatever. it's like, and you should take abuse or something like that. Because the next thing, see, if, if repentance relies on mercy Number two, repentance responds with confession. Repentance responds with confession. In verses 3 through 6, David says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts, and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. You know, David isn't hedging here on his confession. You know, This isn't half-hearted. He says, verse 3, I know my transgressions. I know what's going on with me. You know, psychologists and counselors will tell you that the hardest thing to do in counseling is to get people to own their stuff. it would be, oh, no, that's not my fault. Oh, that's not my kid's fault, what they did. And to to get some type of confession... After like months of counseling, you might, they might say, well, if I did this, then it's because of. That's as close as we get to confession. David says, against you, God, you only have I sinned. And this is not belittling or, or undervaluing what he did to Bathsheba or to Uriah, but it, it's, it's acknowledging that his sin is measured by the standard of God. In verse five, he says, I was sinful even at birth, which is, it's another way of saying that this isn't a blip on my radar screen. This is part of my life experience. This is who I am. I know that I have made mistakes the entire lifetime that I've been standing up on this planet. He has an honest evaluation of who he is. Confession uh, like that it's counterintuitive. It's, it's, it's not what we naturally do. We'd rather rationalize or be defensive. Scott Peck, psychotherapist and best-selling author of a book titled The, uh, the Road Less Traveled, he says this, uh, evil people are aware of their wrongdoings but have a kind of militant ignorance against admitting it. I find that to be true. Th- David goes on to say that this kind of confession requires kind of a, a self-awareness, a capacity to be introspective in, a, in, a, in an aware manner. In verse 6, he says, you desire truth in the inner parts. It's not, not just like a surfacey. Awareness, but something deep down that comprehends that we're not perfect. An inner awareness that, yeah, I'm, I was wrong. I'm, I'm often wrong. I can be wrong. Uh, that sin affects everything all the time. And it's a capacity to admit it out loud. Can I tell you guys a story where I got something right? recently can I yeah okay I'm going to anyway so this week I went surfing uh, with two guys I'd never surfed with before they're both here today and we had a great time and it was one of those for me a perfect day of surfing surfing with people that I've wanted to hang out with and um, got there early Sun is warm the waters really warm and the waves are just not good enough that it's not crowded, which is perfect for me. When they get really good, it's like I'm fighting for crumbs then at my level. So we're just having a great time. And I had told Cindy, it's like, you know, hey, we're will be gone. we leaving at 530. We'll be back by this time. And so while I was surfing, I was thinking, you know, I should probably go. Hey, when do you guys want to go? You want to leave at 9? And You want to leave at 10? I just kept extending it. So I got home a lot later than I had said. So then I walked in the house, all joyful, awesome surf session with new dudes, and um, I could right away tell that thing was going on. (laughs) And so I I wanted to play dumb, you know, like, what'd I do? But I kinda knew what I did, and I'm like, you know, you okay? Da, da, da. And just in case, you know, I didn't want to just out it, because that would be dumb, right? It's like, <laughs> let's let's make sure that this is it, because I don't want to confess something unnecessarily. <laughs> and um, I was pretty sure it was, and I said, "You're," I was gone too long, huh? And um, she said, "Yeah," I kind of thought, it, you know, she loves it when I get to go surfing, and but I was gone too long. And I said, you know, I'm. I'm sorry I did it's like the water was warm everything I just told you everything was perfect and I just stayed too long that confession um, led to a great day rather than a horrible day confession is the result of repentance and I truly was repentant in my heart I wasn't faking it and that Confession comes from being kind of aware and open to admitting. So that's one time I did it right. I could tell you 10 other stories where I don't do it right, but every once in a while, a pastor has to tell a good story about himself, just so you have some faith in me. So um, repentance relies on mercy, and um, it results in confession, but... Thirdly, repentance replaces guilt and brokenness with joy and restoration. It replaces that guilt and brokenness with joy and restoration. Verse 7, David says, "...cleanse me with hyssop," which is a kind of a fragrant herb that was used in um, religious cleansing. "...and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice." Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You know, when we, when, when we know that mercy awaits us, it makes us more open to acknowledge our faults with God and others. And it's on the other side of that, that confession, that we find real joy in restoration. But, but to try to skip the repentance part will short-circuit that joy in restoration. It makes it fake. If we don't deal with the core issue, then moving on is just kind of ignoring the problem. But stepping up and owning it doesn't lead to condemnation with God and many times with others. It leads to, like, a new level of joy and true restoration. You you may have read on our website, if you're new to Sunridge, some of you remember this, but in 2005, shortly after we had moved into this building, Sunridge experienced a really bad church split. And... um, It separated pastors that had worked side by side. It separated friends. And it even separated some families. Those were really dark days, and it was painful for all. And I was so uncomfortable with the way it had ended. And I knew that I had had a hand in what had happened. And that discomfort i just couldn't move on from it so i started like just having conversations with some of the people that left sunridge you know a church was started in this valley out of the split and uh, i just started going to some of those people probably the ones that i felt i was closest to and yet felt so far you you get that kind of prioritization and Just going to them and basically stepping up and owning what I'd done. And you know what I found? They did the same. And then it was just a few years later that our pastor uh, during that period left. And um, I led the church as an interim pastor. And at that time, I was convinced that I did not want to be a pastor. And so it was just an interim, but one of the things I wanted to do was like to try and reconcile those relationships if possible. It started kind of like on a one-on-one, and then I worked with the board, and we went to their board. And it became like an organizational reconciliation, and God did an amazing work through that. But here, here's the, in retrospect, if I look back since those years, which uh, the re- reconciliation happened around 2010, if I look back at like people's lives... I can tell you that the people that were most willing to repent and own have experienced the most joy in restoration. And the people that are kind of like in the middle, you know, it's kind of like a half-hearted, it's like they're not fully restored. And the people that were resistant and unwilling to just step up and own some stuff They are, they are not joyful, and they are not in a place of restoration. You know, in this part of David's psalm, there's kind of like big confession and little confession. You have to consider that. He's talking about the bones that God has crushed. Uh, please don't take your spirit from me. These are not things that God, I think that God brings consequences, but these are the words of David. This is how he feels. He feels so, so devastated. And because I've gone through that, I know what that feels like. I bet you do too. And it's that confession of that that brings him to a place where he's full. He's renewed. And something's different in him. Repentance leads us to a place of joy and full restoration. And I would say, I know I'm running out of time here, but I'm going to take time to share this. Like on the big ones and the little sins, you know, it's like we tend to save our repentance for some big sin. You know, David committed adultery. It was likely imposed it could be it would be called a rape today I think because Bathsheba had no power to fight back. There's no no indication that Bathsheba needed to to repent of this in the Bible that she was complicit in it in any way. This is a horrific thing to happen to somebody. And so David confesses this. But you know we like there's a thousand little sins that we can repent of so The thing is, like, if you just save your repentance for some biggie, and then you're unwilling to admit fault along the way for the smallies, then um, you're going to die the same death, except it's just going to be a death of a thousand sins instead of one big one. And the way I'd explain this, like, I talk a lot about to to my friends about, like, you know, I'm I'm getting older. I know it's hard to believe when you look at this, but... um, (laughs) And I feel it, you know, like Motrin is my friend constantly. And I've just thought, you know, I've said to people, like, one day when I'm, like, when I can feel like my time is over, I'm going to tie pig guts onto my surfboard, I'm going to paddle out to the kelp bed and let a shark eat me and just get it over with. And I can do that in California because we have the great white. And it's like one bite, you're gone. These things are like two tons, some of them, you know, it's like bite you in two. That's the way I want to go. Now, if I lived in Florida where they have much smaller sharks, I could not use that method to check out because it would be a bite of a 1,000 little sharks. And you can see that, see, there's a spiritual lesson here. Just keep tracking with me. (laughs) The thing is, you're just as dead. It's just way more painful. So our choice is, in repentance, do we want to die one big death or do you want to die a thousand deaths over because we're unwilling to just step up? Now, do you see how that all comes together? Okay. Thank you for bearing with me. Yeah. <laughs> now you know what it's like to live in my head a little bit. There's some crazy <laughs> things going on here. Lastly, uh, repentance returns us, it returns us to a place of full blessing and purpose. We find joy and restoration, but eventually, repentance takes us to a place of full purpose. Repentance isn't a constant self-flogging so that you just wallow in your wrongs for the rest of your life. That's self-pity. And that leads to paralysis. So you're gonna see in this psalm how David doesn't stay there. There's a turn here in the psalm and he moves forward in confidence, relying upon God's mercy through his confession. And the joy of his salvation is returned. And he's restored to God and he moves forward in that and the confidence that God will use him. Verse 13, he says, after I've done this, after I've repented, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O oh, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it to you. You do not delight; you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh, God, you will not despise. And your good pleasure makes Zion prosper. His, he's thinking of his kingdom. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So. Uh, in summary, what David is saying, after I've repented, what I can see is that I will teach transgressors your way. I will declare your praise. I will, I will enable the community in which I live to prosper. And why that's important to me is that over my years as a pastor, just like living life with friends, I think that sometimes we think that repentance is just this, this place that you can never come out of. And in a way, it, it hinders us from truly repenting and moving forward. And many of you, your past is still dictating what is your perception of how God can use you. And it's just dragging you down. And so you have to grasp this that an honest and open admission to God brings God's mercy. His grace, and you're not held to that anymore. Uh, the way I've heard it, it's like if, if you're a person who, it, it, it tends to be surrounded by sexual sin or sins related to sex. If you had an abortion, I've, I know women that just like, you just, you cannot move forward from that. If you uh, were sexually promiscuous in your past, if you had a relationship that was illicit and now you're not in that relationship, and it's like, that just, that you that you, you keep framing your life today through the lens of what happened in the past. And David says, when you repent, now, now you are free to be used by God. And that should drop away from behind you. Repentance, then, leads us to that place of full usefulness to God. And it, but if we don't do that work, then number one, if we deny our need of repentance, then that will lead us to self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness, I promise you, will eliminate you from the opportunities to touch people's lives who are far from God. If we deny other people repentance, which is associated with self-righteousness. Then we are living with kind of like this underlying resentment of what has been done to us, people that have hurt us, people who have wronged us, and we'll live with this unmerciful spirit toward others at the same time begging God for his mercy. And all of these things eliminate us from the way God wants to use us, a sinner saved by grace, amazing grace, replaced, restored into a place where you can teach transgressors, where you can sing of God's praises, and you can tell your story, part of which was repentance. And some of you are just plain old denying yourself the fruit of repentance, and you're living under this load this weight of shame and guilt, and that is keeping you from being that voice of praise in the community of relationships that you work in and live in. You see, almost every good thing in our relationship with God, in our relationships with people, kind of is initiated by this starting point of being able to admit our wrong, to repent. It is a necessary part of our relationship with God, of starting a relationship with God, and it will be continue to be a necessary and critical part of you experiencing joy, of God restoring relationships, whether it is with him or with others, And of God fully using you and allowing your life to benefit others, many times through the brokenness that you experienced. It just comes down to which way you want to live. Let's pray.